Global Partners for Development proudly presents What Do You Understand? A deep dive into the many facets of philanthropy and development. We will have conversations about what really works and what really doesn't. Do we know yet how to solve poverty? Are big ideas the answer, or do we need to look for small grassroots solutions? Experts in their field will discuss an aspect of their work that they understand particularly well. We will delve into how their work addresses global inequity with an honest conversation about impact. Let's talk about big bets, innovation, social enterprises, large-scale humanitarian aid and the fixation on ending things, or solving humanity's greatest problems, and the issues that arise while tackling it all. I am your host, Rhea Pullen, and my co-host is the Executive Director of Global Partners for Development, Daniel Casanova. Our guest today is Sasha Fisher. Sasha is a co-founder and executive director of Spark Microgrants, an organization that helps communities across West, Central, and East Africa to develop and launch their own social impact projects. Welcome, Sasha. Thanks, Maria. And thanks for doing this podcast. There's so much we don't yet know about, like how do we build the world that we want to see? So I'm happy y'all are diving into that. Excited to talk to you about it. I think we kind of start with just, I want to hear a little bit about your background and how you came to Spark Microgrants. So honestly, it was like a trail of questions, I think. <laughs> I think I'm like the opposite of like, oh, I thought I knew something, so I should do it. It was more like, I really don't understand so many things, so I like have to go learn about that. I grew up in New York City and, and was in public school my whole life, which I loved, so like amazing education. But we also didn't learn so much about the world. Like we literally never once learned about anything on the continent of Africa. And I'm pretty sure we probably didn't learn much about the continent of Asia, which is like a good portion of our entire world. <laughs> so it felt like there were some things missing. <laughs> and I also grew up about five blocks north from ground zero. Oh, and I was in middle school when 9-11 happened. And so when, you know, I, the thing that used to guide me home, the Twin Towers, because you could see them from anywhere in the city, um uh and as new yorkers we got to roam around whenever we wanted you know so like at night when we're wandering home we we could look to those towers to get there um but when they fell it was kind of a question for me more around why did this happen and what was america's role in making this happen what inspired these events so 9-11 was this moment of like questioning for myself what was america's role in this and what inspired these events and i think around the same time I was starting to learn also about the kind of immense level of global poverty in the world. And it felt un unfathomable to me, just like really hard to wrap my head around. And both of those things led me to explore kind of over the next decade, like what does it look like to build a world that actually works for everybody and a world where everybody can meet their basic needs and live with dignity. I didn't really understand as a naive, kid in new york city like why aren't we there yet like why doesn't that world exist <laughs> we have so many innovations so much money like so much capital in the world and so much brain power in the world you know why haven't we achieved that yet isn't that the first thing for us to figure out and when i got to university i think that i allowed myself to dive in further into that question and really ask what is it that has what that makes the most progress towards that world and um, I remember there's like this charity uh, rating system online that existed when I was in high school. 
it was like charity navigators like first version of charity navigator or something like that and it was like all that it the only criteria was like percentage of of overhead yeah. you yeah. know like how much money did the organization spend on overhead and i was like this is like a terrible that doesn't tell me anything about the impact like, <laughs> i actually like this is like a non-starter it's not telling me any real information um and you know companies have lots of overhead so why why do we care about that so when I got to college, I ended up following um, some, I went to school in Vermont and Vermont had a really strong refugee resettlement program. And there were a bunch of folks who had come over from South Sudan. And so I followed a few friends back to South Sudan and learned about, you know, in Yay, South Sudan, kind of close to the border of Uganda and the DRC. I just kind of followed my friends around for a while and uh, and they showed me, you know, the empty school buildings and the broken water taps in an area that was emerging from two decades of civil war. I mean, it was, you know, it was like if you were going to invest in an area like this was the area to invest in. And yet you could see the investments were just like sitting unused, tons of money to build stuff and then going unused. And, the you know, the question, of course, is like, why is that the case? And community members would say, well, that's not our school. You know, a big INGO came in and built that. That's their school. And that's their water tap. Why didn't they come back and fix it? Oh. <laughs> that's <a> great question. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, South Sudan was pulling out of, out of war and into an era where they were about to gain independence. And the idea of independence is like, how do you, you know, having control over your own future the future of your country, the future of your land and people. And it felt like a lot of the foreign aid money that was coming in was really detracting from that future, that I was actually telling people, you aren't in control of your future. Like we control the money and we're gonna build these big projects that are gonna fall apart very quickly. Uh, and we're gonna sideline you in the process. And we're gonna essentially teach you without saying it that like you don't have the right ideas for your own country. And so when I graduated from university, I was like, well, that's a total mess. That's, that's, you know, definitely not the right way to do it. <laughs> Can we reverse that and basically do the opposite thing instead of like going in and imposing ideas on communities? Can we, you know, still move the resources, but let communities have their own decision-making authority about what their future looks like. And that might be a, a healthier psychological state to be in, but also like a healthier infrastructure, uh, you know, way to build infrastructure too. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And so that um, led you to Spark then. Yeah. And then we happened like accidentally to start this organization called Spark Microgram. <laughs> accidentally? <laughs> accidentally. Can I get a Pasha? Posh? Can we get a Yeah, Pasha, 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 Tanatoma, Gotta like, and I, like I see why you work in the area you did, mostly because of the, the Sudanese friends that you followed, right? Is that why you chose that specific area for Spark? You know, when I moved to, I, so in 2010, I ended up moving to Rwanda, very okay. uh, big, uh, uh, a remarkable opportunity and gift to be able to do that. And um, I had never been to Rwanda before. I knew I wanted to get back to the region. I did really love South Sudan, um, but I wanted to go somewhere that I hadn't been. I also wanted to go somewhere that didn't have the limelight on the country. Um, you know, I think a lot of development efforts are tested in, you know, Western Kenya and every RCT happens in Western Kenya, <laughs> which is a great area to work in. And, and there should be a lot of work there. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to go somewhere that I didn't know very well and that I could not pretend to myself to be any level of an expert on. And so moving to Rwanda was like a forcing mechanism to go and be a, like the opposite of an expert and just like 
you know, kind of be there to learn and to explore and let folks from the region kind of build what they wanted to build themselves for enabling communities to have greater power and authority in, in their own development process. So yeah, that's how I ended up. And then I had an advisor who was like, oh, I know this one guy in Rwanda. <laughs> so then I went to Rwanda. <laughs> was, what was the first project that you guys did? Do you know, do you know the, like, the first community you worked with? Yeah, I uh, got to sit on almost all the community meetings. There, so there were three communities that in the first year that we worked in with in Rwanda, and then there was one community partner that we worked with in Uganda through uh, local civil society organizations, a government official, a university student who you know very kindly volunteered, and one of the first projects in Rwanda was um, actually like a potato farm that brought community members from a community that had quite a bit of conflict internally to come together and grow potatoes together, increase food security, uh, and also build some of those, the, the social trust that is so necessary at the community level, and also some trust between community members and local leaders. That was really educational for us thinking about, you know, the process is important for the project that happens, right? The potato project is really important. People have more food. And also the fact that folks are sitting together and talking together, that there's some sort of power there as well. And um, and then the first community project in Uganda was, was great. It was a community um, called Wantiti and they uh, ended up building a school. And in my head, I was like, you can't build a school for, you know, at this point it was, yeah. The grants were like $1,600. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. This school is $1,600. Like, there's something in the infrastructure is <laughs> not going to be right. Like, <laughs> this is a terrible idea. <laughs> and of course, that's the village that like ended up launching their school. Like, the school was just like some tin roofing with some poles, you know, and the poles were donated by some folks in the community. And, you know, a, a grandpa donated the land and they made it happen. And kids, we're all of a sudden in school. And now like fast forward 10 years later, it's a massive school. I mean, it serves oh, wow. hundreds of students. They've built it out. There are walls on the buildings now. <laughs> There's multiple buildings. It's like a pre-primary, a primary and a secondary wow. school. <laughs> so it's all to say, just like never trust the Mazungu in the room. Never yeah. trust the Westerner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like they can't do that. That's good. Yeah. That must feel really yeah. good for you. I mean, that I'm sure. And I know that you have must have like, Lots and lots of anecdotes like that. There's like lots of communities like that. So, so yeah. is that kind of how is what is like the the process of Spark coming into a community? How does that work from point A to actual like the project being implemented? Yeah, I think the premise is that every village and every neighborhood, families in every village and families in every neighborhood have great ideas for their village and for their neighborhood. Every single one of them, right? Like people have great ideas and they know what their neighbors need. They know what their kids need. So there's tons of brilliant ideas that exist. And it's a question of how do you unleash those ideas to become reality and also build this ethos that like, yes, we can do it. Like we have the power to be able to do it. What does that mean to be able to have the power to do it? Well, A, we start with weekly village meetings six months of weekly village meetings. So women and men, young and old are sitting together and actually talking about what does it look like for us to make progress as a village? What are our dreams for our village? What are our goals? Shared goals, right? Most organizations were in the you know Western development sector. We're talking about problems. We're like, what problem exists here so we can fix it and feel good. 
Now let's talk about what, what do we want to see in the future? Hope is a very important thing for humans. <laughs> yeah. So we focus on what do we want to see in the future? And then communities come up with their own pathways. What are we going to do together as a community with the money that we're receiving? Every village Sparks work, Spark works with receives $8,000. Um, they start their Except those first ones. Except the first ones. I don't know, they got gypped. It's really <laughs> unfortunate, but, but they've raised millions of dollars since then. I see it. Okay. <laughs> no, keep going. I derailed you. <laughs> and, um, and then at the end of the six months, we, you know, at that time, we actually start dispersing the funds um, so that communities can have a win very quickly. And when you have a win, in a lot of the organizing literature, you'll see this, if you have a win at six months, you basically stay organized and you keep driving local change. And so it kind of ingrains through experience this idea that like, oh, if we work together, we can actually achieve something. And for humans, I think three things that feel really grounding to me are humans crave community, purpose, and progress. We all want that, right? Like, we do things for other people. So the community meetings are a place where it's like, at first people show up and they're kind of dealing with their neighbors, but they all disperse from the meeting really quickly. You know, by the end of the six months, the village meeting after it's formally over, people are lingering, they're <laughs> chit-chatting, they're gossiping, you know, they're like selling banana cakes. <laughs> they're friends now. <laughs> yeah. And, they're, and they have purpose. They're building a school together or they're launching a business to make more money so they can feed their families twice a day instead of once a day, you know? And they're making progress. Like the purpose is there and then they actually see the progress together. That's really fulfilling. That's, a, that's really important for humans. And I think universally we need that. And we could be learning from parts of East Africa, Southern Africa, a lot of the global South models that allow humans to experience those things we i think we crave that in the west i think we're seeing a lot of the fallout of folks not having a sense of you know loneliness is spiking and sense of community is really low so, and i think you know that was the, i think like you know post world war ii i imagine that like our grandparents they were like involved in their local city council and actually went to meetings were like i don't want this stop sign here we don't want so-and-so's yeah. <laughs> cow farm on this court you know like if they were really engaged and i think like we, we aren't, right? Like, I don't go to my, I mean, I have, I'm more engaged than most, but I think like, right, there was probably a time in the US where people did engage like that. And it's like, it is interesting to be able to go to East Africa and actually still see, see that there's that space. Like, yeah. How do you bring that back? How do we, how do we bring that? How do we do that here? Daniel, let's collaborate on this. We got to bring, <laughs> let's bring, change everything. Yeah, bring this process to the US. You know, I think I've talked to a lot of mayors in the US and governors, and they're interested in something along these lines. Um, you know, I think in the US, form, the formal spaces to engage with our government are limited. You like, you can go, you know, vote. Yeah. Every four years, maybe every two years, if you're like super proactive, that's very low engagement right in terms of formal spaces and uh and i think people want to be closer to the state like people are defecting from the state right we're becoming anti-institutional because we don't have enough touch points with it so we kind of like don't have any ownership over it there's direct that's why people are storming like the school board meetings because that's where they can actually yeah. make any like 
(laughs) So back to Spark, like how much level of involvement do you have? I know it's very community led. It's all the community. What does Spark have? Like, are they facilitators or what? And then where do you extract yourself? Or are you always like have some kind of presence? Yeah, it's a good question. So every village receives 8,000 USD. They set up their own bank account. They start their own savings. So they have, they end up having rotating funds basically at the village level to use. And community members have full authority to decide what to do over that money. So in that way, we have no control over that part. The thing that we do have control over and that we do instigate is is kind of reinstituting inclusive processes. So a lot of you know, colonialism kind of like created this version of governance that's really about elite capture. So at the global level, you see like there's a handful of people who have a lot of power and they, they kind of have like, you know, outweighed decision-making authority of how the world is evolving. At the very local level, that goes down to the nation state, that goes down to the village level. At the village level, you'll see that where there's a handful of local elites, you know, typically elder men who have the decision-making power in the village, mm-hmm. We basically don't want to reinforce that, right? We don't want to reinforce that colonial kind of culture and instead reintegrate some of the indigenous practices around collective decision-making and inclusive decision-making. So we do things, um, we actually end up training village facilitators who are young folks under 35. Every village elects their own facilitators and we train them in how to hold and facilitate village meetings that are inclusive of women's voices, youth voices, um, voices that aren't always heard. Uh, That's amazing. In meetings. Cool. And then yeah. where is your level of involvement after that project is completed? Very little. So we okay. actually, um, right now we're, we're really working in partnership with governments. The government of Rwanda and the government of Malawi have asked us to support them in developing a national strategy for rolling out this um, village-based system uh, in every village across their countries. So we're really working to serve those governments to be able to roll this out. And the government, you know, is there this year, it's there next year, it's there the year after, it's kind of there indefinitely. Yeah. <laughs> so our involvement is supporting government to show up in, in really positive ways. Well, and what it's so in the going into the future, does that look then like the government would continue to do facilitation with the community on an ongoing basis? So there wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't just be a, it'd be a rolling process, yeah. right? Like they'd have, do you, what is that? Do you have an idea of what that looks like in terms of time frame? Like, is it once a year? I'm just curious, like. Yeah, so I think the first year is always going to be the most intensive because it's when you're instituting a new norm of a cadence of village meetings and how to hold that space in a semi-inclusive manner, right? Shifting from just two people are making decisions for the village to, you know, 550 people have some level of engagement is, that's a shift. After that first year, it will be an annual process. It's essentially an annual village planning and budgeting process. Um, And we're just doing that in a really, really effective way, you know, that gets outsized impact compared to kind of any other model for village governance, village planning and budgeting. Right. And so what do you find some of the challenges are with community-led grassroots organizations? Like what do you, what are the challenges you face specifically in Africa? I may think more like to get them like what, like, so your, your model is a lot different from the way other organizations yeah. define themselves as doing grassroots work. Yeah. So 
how do you like what do you see as some of the issues that arise from that type of work and you know i'm, I'm asking you to be like yeah. mean you know like what, what's the like why does global partners suck Stop. <laughs> okay maybe i'll maybe i'll try to highlight how they're different right yeah. because there's one operating mode of the world which is like there are great grassroots efforts that exist and they need more support and they should have more funding and they should have more you know, backing and yeah. PR and money. And like, that's just <laughs> true, right? Like the existing grassroots efforts that they need more resources. The reason we started Spark was because we're inspired by grassroots efforts. And we sort of feel like, well, every village should have the chance to have that type of the grassroots kind of movement happening at their village, but we shouldn't have to wait for every village to start a community-based organization to be able to do something for their village, right? Like that just seems kind of silly. So what if we almost deconstructed how we think about what does grassroots look like? Does it have to have a formally registered entity to be grassroots or can it just be a group of people that are coming together to create change that matters for their neighborhood or their village? And if we believe that that is a really important form of grassroots work, then how do we actually stimulate more of that to happen? so that there's grassroots work happening everywhere, right? That every village has the opportunity for families to kind of get together, think about what they want and be able to make that change. And so it's just a different construct, you know, what already exists as like registered entities making really important work in this world. Yes, like bolster that work. In areas where that doesn't exist or there's other things that are left on the table because not every village is gonna have a CBO, nor is that, like, why is that, that shouldn't necessarily be the end goal. <laughs> Maybe yeah. the end goal was really about all people having some power to be able to create the change that they want to see in the world. And how do we design systems to enable that to happen? Um, and that's really what we're working on. You know, we don't really care whether, if there's a group that already exists or if it's registered or not, it's like just people, people should have the authority to create the change they want. I'm in. You've been you, you, indoctrin you indoctrinated me. <laughs> How would you describe the difference between the two approaches? From, well, I mean, I think it's, I mean, what, what's, what I think is hard about it is, is there's so many different size players, right? So I think that matters. And then I also think that the, the ver there's a lot of, depending on the country, there's varying government systems that that are that kind of pervert and and yeah. and str like box in what can be done right so um i think that you know on a very basic level i think at some point there are the groups that are doing work or trying really trying right like trying to have inclusion and dialogue with people on the ground and, and let have them be the have ownership and and to be honest it's like a spectrum right it looks like yeah. a lot of different things i think yeah. for the most part of the the issue i see is that everyone's using the same language but mm -hmm. they're all doing different things it's not you know in other sectors i think the language probably match especially in the for-profit right like the the language of the industry matches yeah. the people that are doing that work right yeah. you know if you're an investment banker or you're an engineer <laughs> or you're doing like you know what i mean like but in the nonprofit grassroots work on the ground yeah. in East Africa, it's like everyone's using the same language, but everyone's doing a different thing. Like they're yeah. all, their apples all totally. look different. Right. You know? And okay. so, yeah, totally. Yeah. Can I share two things that are, yeah, this is, I am appreciative of all the range of work that happened. <laughs> and 
sometimes we are talking to partners and we're talking about how communities should have the decision-making authority over there. So there's two things I'm just going to share that are more of like things that we would love to see maybe evolve in our sector. And like yeah. one is that people are like, oh yeah, people should have the decision-making authority over, you know, what projects they're choosing, but then they still want it to be sector specific. They're still yeah. like only going to fund education or they're still only going yeah. to fund like a very specific type of intervention. And sure, if you go to a village and you say, do you want a school? You know, like people are gonna say, yeah, I want a school, yeah. you know? It's not really truly community owned if you've already pre-prescribed the outcome area. So I wanna challenge us in the sector, like nonprofits like Spark and donors to engage in a way that like we kind of let go of the need to decide for communities what they're going to be working on and allow them to have that authority. And the second piece is that there's this, I think there's like a myth about community ownership that community is synonymous with one or two people. Yeah. And that's elite domination. And elite yeah. domination, we don't want to reinforce that, right? That's the whole point of this work is so that everybody has a good life yeah. in the future. And so let's not mix up funding one person to mean community, fund that person because they probably have a great idea, like still do that. Just don't think that it means that the whole community has like actually has ownership over that project, right? And those are two different things, like the individual versus the collective. And I, I mean, from, yeah, yeah. No, like, I'm saying in the, on the foundation side, this happens happening a lot right now. And in that like, just because you have indigenous staff or you have indigenous people making the grants decisions, right? They're still within this, like in some cases that a lady in Nairobi that's indigenous might be worse to work with than some like woke Belgian lady who maybe has under, I don't, you know, I'm just speaking about it crudely, but it's hard because it's like, it then the, those foundations can point to and be like, oh, well, no, they're, they're, they're look at all that. We have an, a local advisory board that's overseeing everything and all this, but it, it's hard. So it's, it's a tricky, yeah. it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's an oversimplification there of not understanding the dynamics and kind of blanketing everybody by their nation state identity, mm. which just simply isn't the only identity that people hold. <laughs> totally. And like, and before, I don't know if Daniel told you, so we kind of started this podcast because I started the Global Partners in October coming in with zero like nonprofit or development or philanthropy background at all. I'm like a professional host. I'm a commercial actress. And so I came in, I was like, well, let's do this. But I wanted to be like, he's an expert. You're an expert. When experts talk, sometimes for people who know nothing, it's like way over their head. And so like, I'm coming in wanting to like fully learn this. And I'm going to Africa for the first time in May to actually see these projects on the ground. And I'm very excited because I think awareness is one level that I feel like people don't even have. And so like, I'm just kind of on this awareness level and just like getting to know as much as like you both have seen just from doing the work and that's how you, you learn. Um, I kind of just have this question like on the other end of the spectrum, you know, what harm is being done to these indigenous communities by completely opposite of what you do? Top level, here's some money, Westerners make yeah. all the decisions. What is the harm being done to the indigenous communities? So much, so much harm. <laughs> no, really, very okay. actively. I appreciate you asking that question. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm trying to think about how to organize these. Are you thoughts. getting angry? 
I know because yeah. I just want to know <laughs> yeah. because for someone who knows nothing, it's like, oh, there's like, oh, let, there's something happened. Like text 4141 to Haiti or whatever, and we're just gonna send money and this is gonna do something. Yeah. You know, so that's where most yeah. people who know nothing about this space, that's what we know about giving and helping yeah. places who have less. You know, that's that's kind yeah. of where I'm coming from. But where's okay. the harm? There's three things I'm gonna highlight here. And cut me off if I'm getting too in the weeds. And You're good. No, this is good. Go, go, go. Yeah. Okay. Number one is that some people are like, oh, we should, you know, like we've not done things perfectly historically. So we like shouldn't be involved. And then you realize there's like the way that our global economic system works right now, it's, it is doing active harm to indigenous communities. And it has been, and it's continuing to do active harm. And the way that that looks is for example, a village in Ghana that has, you know, where a company thinks that there are minerals in that village, they're trying to make a dirty deal with one of the village leaders to give them, you know, give that guy some money and then promise jobs to community members who want to make more money for their families, but where those that promise is a false promise, right? It's a fake promise. It's, it's not going to be realized. Maybe they're going to do really hard manual labor in the mine that's very dangerous for people get paid very little. And then in three months time, there's going to be no more work. So, and the trade is that they give up all of their land to the company. Mm. That's not okay. That is land stealing. That's harmful. People become displaced. They no longer have their farms to live off of, right? Because people are living off of the food that they're growing on their land. So they no longer have a home. They no longer have food. That's direct harm that's happening. That's also fueling our economy that we also thrive off of, right? The minerals and the materials that are going into all of our technology are coming from communities like that. We have a partner advocates for community alternatives that works with communities that are affected by mining companies and they help organize them and they use part of the spark process to help communities get organized and basically fight back and protect their land. Oh, that's cool. That's active harm though, right? Like that's like yeah. one level of active harm. That's really explicit. There's a second level that's around how do we work? How do we support and use philanthropic money and aid money to support families to have a better life in the future? And the how of how we work, when we do aid in a very top-down prescriptive way, what we're not saying to people, but we are some, you know, yeah. kind of still telling them is you don't know what you need. Mm -hmm. You don't have the government to implement the road. You don't know how to build the road. You don't know this. That's why we're coming in. You we can't monitor your own funds. Yeah. <laughs> like I made the money. So I know how to build that road. So I'm going to come in. I'm going to build that road. And then you're going to thank me for that road. Psychologically, what that does is it tells people that they're not capable. And that's, yeah. that's a, that's, that is a way that racism also is alive and powerful in the way that we use aid money, yeah. <laughs> right? Psychologically, that's, that's really detrimental. When you have a thriving economy where there's lots of business growth, part of what exists is an entrepreneurial mindset where people mm -hmm. feel like they have great ideas. They're able to go after them. Sure, the capital is there. There's also a psychological component of that, right? In America, yeah. there was this study that was done that was like Americans 
I think it was American men, but it's still American <laughs> men basically believe they always think that they test higher than they actually test. Oh. You know? But it's kind of telling, like, and I think that it's part of the entrepreneurial mindset, which is like, why would somebody go off and believe that they could like start some crazy company that does everything differently, you know? But then they go off and do it. And there's something about that gusto that's important. Why aren't why isn't that mindset what we're also trying to? support through aid. Instead, we're actually telling people you don't have the ideas. You don't have the money. You don't have the knowledge to go create the change that's needed in your area. And so that, I think that's the second level for me. Yeah, that's like that's the American exceptionalism, right? Yeah. Like the American yeah. exceptionalism where we, we think not we, but you know, people think that because we're American, we know the right way to do it because it's how we built our country. Yeah. To me, it's like, Oh, Oof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's so, so condescending what you're saying. It's like to go into a community to speak like that. So condescending. Yeah. yeah. And I think that it comes, it often, I think, comes from like a well-intentioned place mm -hmm. where people yeah. really want to help. It's just that we're not so aware that how we're helping may also be doing this harm. It's kind of like, um, you know, the whole thing about handouts. It's like a handout is good, right? Like people do yeah. need to say. And like how we are providing that handout though, like then can teach people, oh, okay, I'm going to sit and wait for that handout tomorrow. Yeah. So it's not always a hundred percent true in that way. And like, we should still always be giving people money and, and food and you know, all that. Yeah. And also at the same time, be doing things that build up people's psychological, you know, kind of like belief in themselves. Yeah. Well, okay, the third thing. Can I say? Oh, like, there's a yeah, third go, thing. No, I'm like, yeah, wait, that was, yeah, there's yeah. a third thing. Everything okay. agrees. Everything, Everything agrees. Everything agrees. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the third thing is that in aid and development, like we oftentimes, not always, but we oftentimes write off the governing institutions that exist in the areas that we're working in. And in some way, we're basically letting them off the hook, right? In the long term, like government should run programs that protect and empower its residents. Yeah. And so if you're going to say, oh, well, government, you know, doesn't know how to do this. So we're going to do it instead, which is what happens a lot in places like Haiti and other areas where NGOs come in and basically replace, create the public sector that should exist, right? A whole healthcare industry or a whole education industry. But by doing that separate from government, you're letting government totally off the hook, you know, like, and there's no contract between the nonprofit healthcare system and the people. There that is a happens in education nonprofits a lot. Like, oh, yeah. they can't do they they the government can't do this. They need to use our education model. Like, we have a better one. We've used this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then you tend to not have universal coverage of things. And really, at the end of the day, you want universal access to healthcare. You want universal access to education. You want programs that aren't just going to reach five hundred people. You want them to reach all eleven million people in Rwanda, right? Or all people in another country. So government engagement, I think is really important. And we have to remember, yeah, we have to deal with that complexity. I think it's harder, right? It's harder than just paying for a malaria pill, but it's really important in the long run. I know Daniel's been like always championing when schools are built, like does government know, are they going to pay for the teachers? Do they have a takeover plan, you know, for the school? It's good. <laughs> so what's your advice to say like any ordinary citizen who does they have their heart in the right place and they want to help these places succeed and have those things what was what would your advice be to these people who want to who have the resources to put their money in the correct places that will actually do the most good and least amount of harm yeah uh support organizations 
you know, that are allowing communities to make their own decisions over what happens in their village. And how do they find that? How do you know that they're doing that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Give money to Spark, right? Yeah. Where yeah, yeah. I'll give you a list. There's Spark microgrants. There's Advocates for Community Alternatives. There's FVS and Modern Burundi. There's uh, uh, we have a page on our website that actually lists a number of partners that use a methodology that allows communities to have control. It's not the only way to do things. There are other decentralized <laughs> approaches that are also really good and definitely give to more proximate leadership, like organizations that are run by folks from the region, you know, give to those organizations, give to the groups that give the most power or allow the most power to be held in community members' hands. And definitely visit sparkmicrograms.org. It's $12,000 for one village to go through the process. We'll definitely have the link in the show notes. Female civic participation increases about sevenfold pretty good things. You're good. You got, you have your elevator pitch down, yeah. Sasha. So do you want to ask her her <laughs> yeah, thing? Yeah. Let me so the so, main thing that we ask you. Yeah. So we've taken a lot of your time, but so here's, this is the thing. All right. What do you know really well, Sasha? What can you tell me about that? You know, really well, have you thought about it? I only gave you, a, I texted you. I, you haven't had a lot to think, a lot of time to think about it, but I imagine you understand something better than other people. Um, I understand that I really do not know what every village needs out there. <laughs> like, I'm never going to claim that. <laughs> but it could be something like, you know, you understand your cat or your girlfriend, or you have like, uh, what, what's the thing that you know really well? I know you know something. Right, to me, I what about like that art? Like, you know what, what, what good, a good painting looks like? <laughs> It's up to the viewer. <laughs> the thing that I get really excited about, though, yeah. I'm not going to claim, you know, uh, uh, that I know the most about anything. But what I get very excited about is new forms of how we govern, how we govern for inclusion so that every person, you know, we can actually build towards a world where everybody can meet their basic needs and live with dignity. And I think that there's really solid ways to do that at a very hyper-local level. Like, you know, no government has really figured out village level governance or community level governance, and yet it's the bedrock for democracy. Over the last 17 years, democracy has been in decline. Only one country last year improved its democracy. That's Malawi. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So, yeah. like, let's, I would love to see so much more energy, so much more funding, so much more innovation happening to figure out how do we really get great hyper-local level democracy to happen in villages and neighborhoods across the world. That stuff is really cool. And in an inclusive way, you know, so every human has dignity in the community. And we always close with like, what is the one project you're working on right now that's super exciting to you? Oh, Yeah. Uh, the First Lady of Malawi has recently invited us to support them and requested that we support them in a national program in Malawi. And uh, we are very stoked about this. Malawi is an incredible country. As I just mentioned, it's the only country that improved its democracy last year. Bravo, Malawi. Their leadership is fantastic. There's the desire for from leadership in the country to you know get more power into the hands of community members, decentralize some forms of of, of government, that's really powerful. And we get to work with them to do that. That's really cool. One day, hopefully every village across Malawi will have some money, like an $8,000 seed grant to do what they want with it and have an inclusive decision-making process and on an annual basis. And that, that's, a, that's a very exciting thing. 
That is really exciting. Thank you so much for giving us your time. I think this was like a great conversation and it helped me understand a lot more about the differences of aid and help. Yeah. Thank you guys for letting me ramble for a while and talk about it. This is uh, all the fun <laughs> stuff of the world. Yeah. Awesome. It's good to get to talk to you. So really super special, Sasha. You're very, very, very on point. I'm so impressed. <laughs> you guys can help me figure out how to say each one of those things in like fewer words in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you did great. Thank you so much, Sasha. At Global Partners for Development, our mission is to advance community-led initiatives that improve education and public health in East Africa. We envision a world in which every East African community has the capacity to implement dynamic, sustainable solutions to the challenges they face. To learn more, visit gpfd.org.